everybody. Welcome to the second episode of Talk on Tech with Patrick Smith and Josh Joseph. Remember, we are here to help you navigate the intricacies of information technology and MCTC. Remember, this is Patrick Smith and Josh Joseph, who are instructors at Mount West Community and Technical College. So today, a little bit later, we're going to have an interview with Jack Loker, one of the other instructors here at Mount West, and talking about some of the other degree options that we have for you. But first, a couple of updates just to remind our students about some pressing reminders. This is week four. Well, we just finished week four of MCTC's classes here, and we're a quarter of the way through the semester. So students need to remember that February 10th, which is just around the corner, is the last day for them to drop an eight weeks course. Um, that's very important because you don't want to have an F on your transcript. And so February 10th is the last day to drop a course. February 29th will be the end of the first eight weeks. And that's also going to mean midterms. So we're halfway to midterms right now, so be aware you might be seeing some pretty killer tests pretty soon. But also March 1st, we'll be starting the second eight weeks courses. So if you signed up for one, do not forget to go. I know that you haven't, you haven't had that in the back of your mind for eight weeks. I know that, but don't forget uh, to go to class because if you forget, you'll get another F. So those are the same reminders from last week's show. Hope you enjoyed that one, um, but that's all we've got so far for this one, so let's go ahead and talk about some tech news. We have several, several <laughs> stories this week that we want to talk about with tech news, and uh, I'll lead it off. Josh and I have a couple of Facebook articles, but my first big Facebook thing is, is the fact that Facebook has said now that the timeline is moving from a uh, optional voluntary type participatory thing to mandatory my big thing with this and I, I really want to know your opinion on this Josh is I, I'm not a I'm I'm a creature of habit I'm not mm -hmm. one that cares about change and all these articles you see out here even like the one we've put up on the Twitter page from USA Today keeps on making it sound like that the timeline is going to embarrass you and Oh my goodness, check all your stuff out before you switch to the timeline. And, if, and maybe I'm reading this wrong, but the thing I can't understand is what part about things that I voluntarily put on Facebook is going to embarrass me? If I, if I understand this correctly, they're saying it's going to be easier for people to see my past posts. Now, those yep. were posts I did. Yep. So I, I don't... I don't understand. Do they think that I was on a drunken binge the last five years I was on Facebook? So, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, the way I look at it is, you know, pe most people that have been using Facebook have been using it, you know, for three or four years. There's a lot of new people to it. But if you're worried about something that you posted four or five years ago, years ago just because they're changing the format of how the timeline or whatever is going to actually work, I mean <clears> – <throat> You knew then what you posted, and now they're saying, oh, you know, don't don't embarrass yourself. Go change it now. It should have already been changed. It should have just never been up there. I well, mean, we, we seem to have a problem these days. I mean, it's just a cultural thing where people need to post absolutely everything they do. Yeah. And, and I do know that uh, you always see that uh, cliché thing where people look back at their pictures in high school, and they're like, oh, my gosh, what was I thinking? 
well, these days, I guess that kind of relates now to Facebook where they look back at their five-year-old posts and say, oh my gosh, what was I thinking then? That's the only, that's the only mentality I can think about. But I, I, unless you're worried about getting a job, um, and a lot of times people worry that employers might go and look at their Facebook page, I don't see why there's this big push to say, oh no, we're going to move to the timeline You'll have seven days to fix your stuff. I mean, at first when I read articles about this, I was afraid, like they were saying previously, that this was going to change my privacy settings. I didn't realize they were talking about that we need to be protected from ourselves. Yeah, that's what I'm like. What I don't understand is it's like you have the ability now to go back and look at other people's, you know, their old posts and things like that before the everybody has a timeline. But I mean, most people. Probably it has already switched over. Some people hasn't, but I mean, <clears throat> with that you can already go back and look. I don't. I guess they assume that when everybody, when the mandatory switch happens, that you know everybody's going to go look at everybody else's Facebook from five years ago and say, "Oh my gosh, look what this person did five years ago." But I have a life. That's, I'm not going to do that. Exactly. That's what I, I mean. You can do that now. Why would you wait? And then it's oh, it's it's apparently easier. You can pinpoint the exact dates and all this stuff. And, like, now I did some things when I already I updated mine a while back when they first um, – you could do the developer thing and, and switch it over. I switched it right. over. And I did some things not too long ago where I took the pictures that we had from San Francisco when we did our big uh, conference out there. Yeah, we got to go last summer to San Francisco for a, uh, for a conference, a college conference. And so – it's always nice when you get to go someplace that's really, really beautiful, yep. and you get to learn some stuff. Yeah. So I took those pictures, and, like, on the timeline, you could put, like, the date, and, like, the you can, it links it up to a map to where it was and things mm-hmm. like that. So it's got some really cool stuff, and, I mean, that's, I think, their big push for it. But I'm still, you know, like, five years ago when I was using Facebook, I, I mean, none of that's going to change. Why would I go back and, you know, delete anything? Well, one thing I also noticed about it, and I... I have not switched over. I, Josh, you went ahead and adopted early, but the yeah, other thing is they, they won't actually tell when it's going to yeah. happen. They keep on saying it's going to be mandatory. It's going to be mandatory. I, I'd like to know when. I just think it's slowly – they're giving people time to slowly switch stuff. But then like like what the article is that you're talking about, it's like clean it up before we switch it over. What's the point? You can clean it up after you switch it over. I mean, if I just I, don't understand. If if I said it, if I put it out there, mm-hmm. um, I'm gonna stand behind yeah. it. You go, I guess you could go with that mentality: think before you post, think before you say it. But also, there's been articles previously. Like I remember, hmm, Scott Scott Nicholas was still here at the time. But I remember about in 2007, 2008, mm-hmm. Facebook had changed their terms of service. Yeah. And he read it, and he was one of those people who would actually read all the agreements <laughs> you're supposed to. Yeah. Um, and he jumped off of Facebook because there was things in there where they were talking about they were going to be able to use your pictures, possibly in advertisements yep. and that type of thing. And they even made mention to the fact that they have backups of all the stuff. Yep. So even if you delete posts, Facebook's it's not like it's gone it. forever. Yeah, They have backups of those things. And even if you delete your account, they still... Uh, that quote unquote own all that because you've you've given it to yeah. them. You put the pictures up online because well, you can delete your account and then reactivate your account. Yes, hence 
it doesn't go anywhere except nobody can view it, but Facebook right. has all that stuff. Yeah, they still have all that stuff. So, I mean, I think these days people probably share a lot more than they should, but um, I don't see how a move to timeline is any different. It is a call to action to go mm-hmm. back and delete bad posts that you made while you were drunk yeah. or while you were having a really bad period of your life. I don't see how the transition to timeline is any more of a call to action to do that than just to say any old time, you know, you should really go back before you apply for a job because you may have like overextended yourself and said too much. So I'm sure it's eventually going to happen to me and, and I'll go ahead and go with the flow, I suppose, but yeah. I'm definitely I mean, it's pretty cool. It, yeah. it looks nice and stuff. Although I don't, Speaking about the look, <laughs> I like they've got it. this two-column look with floating posts, and you, you know what I'm going to say, yeah. I bet. I've seen this two-column look with floating posts, and I never joined said service back then, but if they want to, they could change their name to Face Place, yeah. and they could be more like MySpace. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's... Or, sorry, Face, face Space. Face yeah, space. Face Space would yeah. be better, yeah. But... Yeah, I mean, I mean, pretty soon I'm going to see like <laughs> glittering angels and and animated uh, GIF files in the background <laughs> yeah. of people's stuff. Um, but yeah, because they're giving you, you know, control over the the cover photo that you, um, you know, you have as your back. That's your background. I like that you know? panoramic picture. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. I like it. That's what I'm saying. Like, but that's you know, there's there's where you're starting to take advantage of your actual background and right slowly becoming your space <laughs> to do do stuff so, with, so. but, but uh, a lot of articles I mean, on that i mean gosh yeah. i mean it's crazy that, that's my thing with timeline but you also have a uh, you also have a facebook related article yes the new everybody's this is another big news facebook's all over the news right now they filed it's uh their ipo with the u.s securities and exchange commission um their s1 papers it's anticipated um, initial public offering since Google's. The IPO values Facebook at $5 billion. Initial public offering. That's what an IPO stands for. So anybody who doesn't know, basically it means Google is going to start selling stock. No, Facebook. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, you you got me on on Google on the brain there for a second. But yeah, Facebook's going to start selling stock. But the kicker is um, it's only going to be shareholder people people that can invest that are considered class B class A or class B um I think you were saying you saw where it was class A and it meant Well there's there's class A stock. I mean yeah. the, the thing that I would think most people would hear is the second they hear oh Facebook is going to have an IPO, an initial public offering. Yes. Everyone's probably like I bet you that stock's going to go from let's say 10 bucks to 90 bucks. Exactly. I want to buy some. Let me quickly make a Scott Trade account. But I think that the part they're leaving out, but is in, in the article we we retreated. In the article we retweet, retweeted. Thank you. Yeah, I'm getting a little tongue tied over <laughs> here. Okay. In that article, the common Joe cannot go out there and buy that stock. You have to already be a savvy stockholder or something. Yeah, they're they're basically saying, um, I'm not seeing an exact amount, but it's basically saying if you aren't already investing and have you know thousands of thousands so you kind of have to be like and you have to be like a stock veteran i it's the way i'm reading these things um 
Yes, it's not going to be something that we can just go out and we're going to be able to afford. It's going to be people that apparently already have stocks in well, other stuff. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's already officially happened, but the company that makes the game Farmville, mm-hmm. uh, Zing- Zynga. Zynga, yeah, yeah, they were also going to have an IPO, and roughly the yeah. same thing happened there too. Because there's a friend I have on Facebook who's all about wanting to, to buy stocks and stuff. And he was really wanting to buy some Zynga stock because get in when the stock's first sold and you know it's going to drive the price right up. Everyone's going to want to buy it. And he wanted to make a little money. Mm-hmm. Well, it didn't look like they were either going to allow, allow the average Joe to buy stock. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, because it mentions Zynga in this article, and it oh, says... Really? Um, I don't know if they've actually had theirs or not. It's talking about the dependence. It says, like Zynga, which dropped by over 10% below its IPO price during its first trading day in December. Really? Yeah. It, it is expected Facebook's share price will soar. According, according to the filing, Zynga is around 12% of Facebook's business. Well, but... Okay, so that's implying that the first day Zynga offered stock, the price dropped by 10%? It's saying it dropped by over 10%. I would have assumed that when it's initially offered, that people would have bought it even more expensive. I mean, that's it's kind of the get-rich-quick scheme. Yeah. I think that, uh, I mean, I don't know, maybe... I don't know. It's just what happened. Hmm. They're saying saying Facebook, so that's not going to happen with Facebook, but... Right. You know... uh, it's saying, and then it's uh, also a few things. Um, it says those those who were hoping for Facebook to rocket to the top of the IPO ship will be will be disappointed. This is a ZDNet article, so it's mm-hmm. someone's opinion. Right. Uh, Google's initial public offering may have been a mere 1.67 billion in comparison, but Infineon AG floated at more than 5.8 billion in 2000. The Facebook IPO is a major event for Wall Street, which is currently being hit by layoffs as firms downsize. Now, the Google initially sold so anybody out there who's not a stock person, and I'm not a stock person, yeah, but but what Google's and what Google did, if I understand this correctly is they said, "Hey, we want some money, so we're going to make some stocks." And they basically sold 1.6 million dollars 1.6 billion dollars yep. worth of stock how much is the google ipo going to go for do they actually say in that article because uh, i want to say some people are saying, saying it's one of the largest ipo ever they're saying five facebook seeks a five billion dollar five billion dollars in ipo wow and apparently obviously that's why i guess the offerings are starting out so high Right, because they want to get they want to get to that qu- quickly. Well, they I guess the problem too billion. is, by default, Facebook gets to say how much the shares are going to cost. Exactly. That's that's it. Once that's the they kicker. sell those shares, mm-hmm. then supply and demand will drive the price. Maybe exactly. that's what happened to Zynga. I think so. I think that's supply and demand didn't didn't, didn't work quite out. work out yeah. so well. Everybody, yeah. everybody was too busy playing Farmville yeah. instead of. Uh, well, someone someone says here. Uh, Andy Borowitz, it's one of the one of the guys here. It says, oh, um, it says the only way Facebook is worth 100 billion is if all of those sheep in Farmville are real. So <laughs> there's because some people are saying that it's worth 100. You know, it's apparently all these numbers and stuff have come out. It's worth 100 billion dollars, but it's well, just, okay. Here, here's one thing I will say. 
at one time we had a dot-com bubble and it burst because places like Excite were worth billions of dollars. Facebook might actually be able to pull such a thing off simply because of the advertising. Because people do advertise on Facebook, so yep. that's true. Yep. But there is a possibility that they are not quite what they think they are. But they do have a lot of users. So because of that, you know, they may still be good. Yep. So those, that's kind of our Facebook news well, for today. We've got one more thing to put. Yeah. They're ta- they're, some of the numbers that they're getting this from right. is how many the, the facts that are going in with Facebook. So here's some updated facts. Okay. It has um, 179 million users in the U.S., 229 million users in Europe from December 31st, 2011, so the last day, 483 million daily active users, um, 435 million mobile users in December alone, 2.7 billion likes slash comments per day. So people are liking and commenting 2.7 million billion, sorry, 2.7 billion times a day, 250 billion photos are uploaded per day, and 100 billion friendships happen. Now so. you said there was over, there was under two, two million people in the U.S. That's on Facebook. No, no, it's 179 million users in U.S. Okay, so but that's under 200. Yeah, under um, 200 million. And then you said over in Europe there was actually over 200 million. Yeah, 229 million users in Europe from December the 31st. So they 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 pulled these at the last. So that's I mean yeah day that's, yeah, that's roughly year. five hundred million users just in the US and in Europe. And so <clears throat> they don't really give an accurate number of how many in the world that they have, right? No. no I mean they do mention all one. the people getting online. Yes. Because they mentioned uh four hundred million getting online. So even if it was just the US and Europe, that's four fifths. So eighty percent of those people, but we know there's more in the world than just American and Europe. Um but four hundred million people getting online every day. See, see, that's my problem. I want to know when they're going to move the timeline because I don't always check Facebook every day. I don't live on it like some people. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you know, it, it's just one of those things that you can't find. Right. They're not saying exactly when. I'm not really worried about taking off my old posts. I just want to make sure that I don't go to my page and that giant splash screen just has a big question mark because yeah. there's no picture. Well, I wonder, I wonder why, why they're so... I wonder if it's because, you know, there's still bugs in Facebook. You know, we know every couple of days, uh, sometimes online it's slow, sometimes mobily it's been acting up quite a bit lately. But, um, well, yeah, recently they've talked about there's been a lot of outages on Facebook, yeah. which is pretty uncommon because yeah. usually they're pretty reliable. So I wonder if they're not telling a date. So, like, the day before the switch happens, they don't have this huge flux of people, like, flipping out over checking their timeline stuff, going, oh, I need to take this right. off, I need to take this off, I need to take this off. They get an over overflow, and then, boom, it's out, and then they're supposed to switch to the timeline the next day. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if that's why they're not saying. Maybe they're worried about that because of the outage problems that they've been having. I don't know. That's I do know that this is definitely not the first time they've changed the timeline. No, I mean, no. I, But I think this is the, the biggest wall, one. You know, some people changed their wall at one mm-hmm. point. Uh, they changed how all their how all their icons came up, that yeah. type of thing. So it's definitely not the first, and it won't be the last. I no. feel sure. So I have a I have another article here. Uh, my article is Mac related. I am a, a Mac user, and um, I mean my whole house is Mac. So 
this is something that does, that does not affect me, but it could affect some people. Um, in Mac, they, you know, we have Windows. We have Windows 95, 98, ME, 2000, XP, and all that. They numbered their operating systems in Mac when OS X came around. They were all 10 point whatever. And so now we're up to 10.7. That's Lion. But the version right before 10.7, 10.6 is called Snow Leopard. There was a new update that came out for Snow Leopard, and it broke something called Rosetta. So let me tell everybody what Rosetta is all about and, and why, if you're a Mac person, this might affect you. Macs traditionally ran PowerPC processors. So I, I actually had one of the original iMacs that ran a PowerPC processor. I still have at my house a PowerPC G4. Uh, that's a Motorola chip, and it was around, I believe, 2001 to 2002 in that area where Apple finally switched over to the Intel chips. Now, the problem is when you write a program, it's not as easy as to say, oh, well, the program will work on any processor. No, there are specific commands. I mean, a processor is like the lowest of the low uh, that you have to support architecture-wise. That's like me saying, well, of course, I can just take my Xbox 360 game and play it on a PlayStation 3. That's not going to happen. There's so many fundamental things that have to be set up there. So to get around that, once we moved to the Intel chips, there were software makers who did not take the time to go ahead and update their software to an Intel chip. Based on that, they had to have their program be emulated. So they had a PowerPC program that was now being played on an Intel processor. And they used this program called Rosetta to go ahead and do that. So what they're saying now is that Rosetta is broken. And that means that if you have old programs that you use, probably programs from small mom-and-pop style companies that you always utilize, it's broken when you do this update. Now, I feel sure they'll go back and fix this. And it's more and more not becoming as much of an issue because when we move to the Intel chip, at this point, people have had almost 10 years as developers to update their code to where there's an Intel, Intel version. They call them universal binaries because when you download them, you can download a PowerPC version or you can download the Intel version for your Mac. And so it's probably not as big of a deal anymore. But uh, even now, Rosetta's not a problem in Lion, which is 10.7, because in Lion, you can't even run PowerPC programs. It's strictly Intel. They've taken Rosetta out. So I figured I'd bring that up, because in our first episode, I didn't really get to talk anything at all about Macs. And I love talking about <laughs> Macs. So. Yeah. I did get to go ahead and bring that up. So I feel sure they'll go ahead and probably fix that and turn that back on. But that type of issue would never affect their current operating system because their current operating system no longer supports the old legacy PowerPC processor stuff. So, And I, I can say I'm really glad they moved to Intel's. It's been a while, but I can remember having um, my, my server, my PowerPC server, and trying to run Windows on it. Uh, because back then you could run Virtual PC, which is the same program that Microsoft purchased. Yep. They ended up buying it from a company called Connects. And Windows ran slow as molasses <laughs> because every single operation had to be translated from what Windows expected, an Intel chip, back to a PowerPC. 
And so now it's the exact uh, change. And uh, I know you've got another one over there, but I want to put in a small little little blurb. Right after I said a whole bunch of Apple stuff, let me let me come back to my bread and butter, my bread and butter, my job, which is being a Microsoft uh, Microsoft professional. There is a young girl who, at the age of nine years old, back in 2004, became Microsoft's youngest MCP and that was the Microsoft Certified Professional. And she was, uh, I believe, from India. But unfortunately, uh, a couple weeks ago, I saw this article, she died. And so in 2004, if she was nine, at this point, she died at the age of, um, of 16. And so she was the youngest Microsoft Certified Professional who, like I say, got certified in 2004 at the age of nine. She was really on her way to, to having a great career. She even, once she completed the course, got to go and meet Bill Gates. They flew her to Redmond to Whoa. meet him. But uh, yeah, wow. but I mean, 2004, at that point, I was already certified, but still, I mean, it was, oh, it was yeah. probably, uh, I wouldn't say a low blow, but it, it, it probably kind of took the wind out of people's sails in, in Scott's classes or my classes when you're like, oh, well, I guess if a nine-year-old girl can get her certification, I can, I can try to get my certification. So she was a very, very bright girl, but uh, yeah, she passed away on January 14th. So that's a little Microsoft news there about uh, someone who definitely broke some serious records at Microsoft, and she was only 16, so that's, that's unfortunate. Okay, well, I guess um, I got one more article. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> it's actually a series of articles, but it's all about one thing. Apparently, if you... I'm really big into hardware, computer hardware. Love working on computers. YTJ Plus class, blah blah blah. Um, if you've kept up on any of this, or if you've noticed that the price of hard drives um, have went up quite a bit, skyrocketed, skyrocketed. Um, part of it was from the tsunami that happened um, the, what, last year, and apparently, I didn't I didn't know this till I started reading into it. There was some flooding in Thailand. Mm-hmm. That just apparently happened as well, and that flooding has caused extreme shortages with um, some of the main um, uh, hard drive suppliers. Right. And so the prices went up, supply is low, but apparently Seagate... Um, well, the idea is it's kind of hard to keep on making hard drives. Yep. When, when you have a pond inside your exactly. building. Exactly. And when people keep on buying them and you can't make them... Then everybody needs them, and so yep. the price gets crazy. Well, I, you know, people started it started really noticing um, in November, December, and then they've just announced that it's going to continue. The shortages are going to continue through 2012. Really? Um, they don't know how far into it, but right. it's going to continue. Um, but Seagate apparently they were. It says they were largely unscathed, um, but their ability to manufacture hard hard disk drives has been impacted due to ex- external component supply constraints. So again, it's affecting all of these, but Seagate says they're still they're still going to be able to do it. Um, they have a lot uh seemingly blah blah blah. Their their stocks and stuff went up because all of these other ones went down because they lost their uh Well, see, here's everything. here's our biggest problem so. we have right now. And I mean I'm not I'm not one of those they're taking our jobs type people yeah, but yeah. but 
it seems like right now the job, um, the lake bed of jobs that are all tech-based are all right by the Pacific Ocean. Yep. I mean, Indonesia, Jakarta, um, uh, Taiwan, Thailand, Japan, China, all those areas, when they got hit with the tsunami and then later with the flooding, it's crazy what they affect. I, I heard someone talking the other day. Um, I was getting my vehicle repaired, and they were talking about that they had to buy a brand-new washer because their old washer and dryer that they had, they couldn't get the circuit board for it because it was made in Indonesia, and when the flooding happened in Thailand, it also affected that area. So it's amazing how we don't necessarily think about all the different hands that have to exchange parts just to put one thing together. Because even though the hard drive, like you said, might be created in one country, the circuit board for it might be created in another country, and that's really, really bad. And, uh, yeah, I've had several students who've seen this happen firsthand because with the hard drives, I had a student last semester who wanted to build a server. I was teaching the first four Microsoft classes, and they wanted to be able to get some hands-on experience at the house uh, whenever they had free time. And he ordered his server from Dell, and it was gonna. He was ordering two 500 gig hard drives, mm. and Dell called him two weeks later after he'd already placed the order, thinking it was coming in. Yep. And they said, "Would you mind if we gave you two 500 gigs?" I'm sorry. Would you mind if we gave you a one gigabyte? And he said, "No, I wanted two because what I was trying to do is he was going to do a virtual server, yeah. and so we were trying to put his operating system on one, exactly. put his virtuals on the other, so that you didn't have a bottleneck of yep. one hard drive." Unfortunately, he, he kind of had to take that situation yep. because the prices were already going up because of that flooding. Well, one of the other things they send, um, Seagate and Western Digital are have slashed their warranties as well. They usually come. Um, Seagate's Bar- Barracuda XT and Momentous XT drives will now come with three-year warranties instead of their five years. So they're cutting two years off of your warranties now mm. when you buy these things new. Um, Non-XT Barracuda and Momentous drives will now be covered for just a year instead of three years. So, hmm. I don't know. Um, I, the lower, so the lower end ones, I I've mean. Always, I've always bought, I mean, I have a couple of uh, network attached storage devices mm-hmm. at the house. And I use Barracudas that I've bought from uh, from Newegg. And I can remember being able to buy a one terabyte hard drive. For about fifty-eight bucks, mm-hmm. so it probably wasn't one of those XTs that you yeah. mentioned. Yeah. Well, but, but now, if you go online and you look for a one gig drive, oh they're not fifty-eight bucks. You're lucky if they're one hundred and sixty bucks. I mean, they're quite quite. You mean one te- one terabyte? Yeah. Well, oh, you said gigabyte. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's okay. I wouldn't get I very you. far with a one gigabyte. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, one terabyte. When I bought it, it was like less than sixty. Now yeah. it's probably more expensive than than one hundred and fifty. Yeah, um, Western Digital they're slashing the warranties for their uh, was it Caviar Blue and Green drives and Scorpio mm-hmm. Blue drives from three years to two. It will go into effect. It's already in effect. It started January second, and it will not impact the external drives though. So if you buy an external drive that hooks up like USB. Apparently that's not because those are probably just their cheap drives inside of those anyways. 
And all um, these hard drives we're talking about, we're talking about the platter based. Mm-hmm. Uh, the solid state hard drive Those market was not really not affected. affected. Yeah. Because, th- and really, it's only because the manufacturing facilities mm-hmm. were not in the were not in the danger zone, basically. Exactly. And and with you know the, uh, we can go into this later. But with the solid state, you know, it's just uh, it's more or less a giant flash drive in a sense. There's no not really any moving parts in it um yeah that's what they call the solid part yeah Yeah. so it's you know manufactured completely different so that's why their facilities were different places so yeah but i mean to us it would be like it would be like saying well let's make a vacuum cleaner in a place where they make cars yeah completely different assembly line so yeah so i mean while the our traditional hard drive prices are going up the solid states they're still kind of up but they're starting to go down so Eventually, you know, we'll be able to afford some of those. Those are kind of expensive for my blood, but yeah, I think that's all I've got. Okay, well, those are some of our articles that we wanted to go ahead and talk about this week. We thought they would be really, really good. Uh, so now, at this point, we're going to go ahead and move on to the interview. So we're here today with uh, Jack Loker, one of our instructors here at MCTC, and he's going to talk about the CCNA uh, or the Cisco curriculum that we call the network systems developer option. So, uh, so Jack, if you want first, just kind of tell us about what it, what all it is you teach here, and uh, you're over in Academy yourself too. Yes, I'm on the uh, the Cisco Networking Academy, uh, which is worldwide. Uh, Cisco is one of the primary network providers uh, in the world right now. Most everyone's seen their commercials. Uh, our goal is to provide entry-level technicians to the career field. Um, our academy is designed over a four-semester type environment. It's similar uh, to programs that are even in the high schools. Uh, one of the nice options we have, if a student starts some, the program in a high school or starts at another school, they can transfer uh, those classes into us and we'll accept them completely because it's a standardized uh, training educational benefit uh, throughout the world so if you go to any academy uh, they're the same so potentially a student at a high school who might already be taking a Cisco program could come into here with at least 16 hours ooh, 12 hours worth of credit 12 to uh, 16 hours depending oh, if okay. they've finished up but a lot of high school students uh, start it, and then they want to come back for refreshers. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, what we're here for, too, because things change in the networking field daily. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've had a lot of uh, people that are in the field right now coming back just for the updates. Because what used to be a basic technician and an advanced technician in the past, the advanced technician now is basic skills. And that's what we're trying to uh, bring people about to Okay. Well, then also something else we never, I don't think we actually hit up on in the first podcast was these certifications, you typically have to renew them in some capacity. Yes. uh, They build on each other. One of the nice things, um, there's two ways of teaching the Cisco Networking Academy in uh, colleges and universities. They have what they call the discovery program and the exploration program. Uh, With discovery, it's made to fit into the lifestyle of someone that has to work, uh, needs to spend time working in the field or maybe going to school. And what they uh, allow you to do is you can take two semesters 
and after the first two semesters take one exam, we call it part one of the CCNA exams. Uh, it's what they call the certified entry level network technician. And with that, uh, those that allow them to go get part-time summertime jobs to learn into the field where in the four-year college they might do the exploration, they don't do the testing midway. Uh, there's a difference in cost involved with it too. Uh, you can, by doing it that way, you have two separate uh, parts of the CCNA exam, which some people learn better that way. They uh, understand the information a lot easier because it's uh, precise for that one exam. Uh, or the people that are coming back in the field, they can take the one exam and provide the same type certification. So you have two, uh, part one and a part two for the CCNT exam or just the CCNA exam itself. So, And we have, we have classes that uh, interweave that into our network system developer option? Yes. Um, our program set up right now, it's up to the individual which way they want to go. Uh, we ask them after the second semester. Uh, they're ready to take the first part, but if they want to wait until the end after the fourth semester, they can. Uh, what a lot of people, and what's recommended a lot is the to take the full CCNA exam. They really do recommend that you uh, take the four classes and spend time in the field before you try to tackle the CCNA test itself. By allowing us to do the partial test, it gives the employer an idea of what the student already knows. He knows that he knows how to set up a small enterprise type network troubleshoot, setting up uh, certain pieces of equipment. So he's not just depending on a paper cert, for example. He knows he's at least had that type training uh, up to that point. He can give him more experience on his equipment and then allow him to take his test after the fact. So it kind of helps get your foot in the door to say, look, I'm already halfway there. And now, you know, with your help and your experience at your job, I'll be able to go ahead and, and finish it up. Yes. Um, I've got one student that started last year that uh, an employer is doing something similar to that with him now as he started in the program, uh, did the first two semesters, and started working uh, for the employer. And he's going to come back in two semesters uh, because he wants to work for him and his employer is going to pay for it uh, oh. because they want to train him on his equipment but they want the overall him to eventually get his certification uh, but now he's making uh, he's got a job mm -hmm. and that was his goal his career uh, he was transitional which is a lot of our students our lot of a lot of our students are coming back yeah and this is their entry into the networking field. I have electricians. I have uh, people that are military getting out that are coming back, trying to find a field. And with these, this type of uh, academy, they'll know within the first semester uh, whether that's really the field for them. One of the nice things is we branch across other programs uh, with basically the same start of the first semester. So if they decide after the first semester that this might not, they might want to do more hands-on with software or something like that, they haven't lost their time because that's a requirement. Uh, semester one is a requirement for a lot of classes, and they can transition to another program without losing the credit hours they need. Okay. 
I want to remind everybody that um, <clears throat> we're talking here about the network systems developer option. And like in the, the last podcast we mentioned, if you're curious to see uh, what that two-year program looks like, you can go to our website of mctc.edu. And at the top of the, bo- up top of the banner area, there's programs of studies. You can choose the two-year program and choose the network system developer. So um, I'm going to come back in a little while talk about the Cisco Academy and, and the perks that a student has with that. But let's talk about some of the classes we have in your two-year degree. Um, we, we've already told people they're going to be having some English, some math, some kind of general education. But let's talk about the IT classes that hone in on, on what's really going to focus the student for us. Uh, in the first semester, uh, one of the things that we ensure all our students have in the IT programs uh, totally is they have IT 101, uh, which is just the introduction fundamentals of computers. It's mostly um, Microsoft Office type classes, but they do des- uh, is designed to get a student comfortable with doing the basic skills that they need to do for office work. Because you said, too, we have a lot of returning students. Yes. And there's a good possibility. There's a possibility this may be the first time they've actively used a computer a lot. Yes, and that's where uh, a lot of them in their regular job might have just used the uh, point-of-sale type computer system, and they've never really had to do uh, the major work that they need to do for school, for colleges and university. They've got to be able to do Word, to do their papers, to communication, do the communication class. We ensure that that's done. Um, we also set up uh, in this area is IT 120, which is Introduction to Network Operating Systems. Uh, back when I started, network Introduction to Network Operating Systems used to be the old DOS operating system. Um, when I came aboard, things had changed by then. One of the things that we found out that a lot of students are exposed to multiple operating systems at uh, school and at home and at their pleasure entertainment. And what we did, we designed a program for network operating systems as far as being Windows operating system and the Unix Linux operating system base. Not to teach them be experts in it, but to expose them. Because we've had a lot of employers that says, we have a Unix type system, Linux based also, and we want our employees to have a general knowledge of it. So what we basically do is go through the basic techniques of network operating system, and we do it on a Windows machine, and then we turn around and do the same technique on a Linux machine to show them. And also a lot of students uh, find out that with the Linux machines, they like it a lot easier, and they'll switch over to it because a lot of the software is what we call freeware. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, yeah, the, using the general use license. General use license. Yeah. Uh, there's a very good product called OpenOffice. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have that on our machines here at school. Right. That is for both the Windows machine and the Linux machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it started up originally uh, really on the Linux type base or Unix type base. But it does everything and can convert Windows type documents or, excuse me, Microsoft Office type mm-hmm. documents. Uh, and... and a lot of students like it because it's free for use. Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of agencies have switched over to it too. So if no matter what type of environment they go into, they're able or have been exposed to a lot of that. And that's that's really the big focus we have with all of our degrees to make sure our students have the exposure to those technologies. So when they go in the workforce, 
and the ed, and the uh, the potential employer says, you know, what can you do? What have you used? They have the ability. Maybe they're not like you said, extreme experts on everything, but they can say, yes, I've used that. Yes, I use that. And and the level of what the employer has to retrain them on is much less for us. And the 120 class is also in the um, network administration option we talked about last week as well. So I didn't really hit upon that at that point, so I'm glad you elaborated on 120 today. So, And the first semester they also take our first Cisco course, don't they? Yes, uh, the first Cisco course is... Uh really designed around a sm home or small office uh, with that one or the, the SOHO type environment. Um, they really get exposed to kind of being the same type of individual that say Comcast or one of the cable companies or uh, telephone companies would have come out and service your systems out there. Uh, again, this is your entry level network technician uh, at that point. And they're being exposed because a lot of them are coming back. Um, and as a matter of fact, this is kind of when they're getting exposed to what w a lot of people are familiar with is the A-plus certification. Uh, we now call it computer essentials. Mm -hmm. And when we're looking at essentials and application with that is they must be able to do some type of technical work on the computers. And um, by the second semester, which would give them that entry level first and second semester uh, that's when their summer hits and a lot of students have to go out and get those part-time jobs to right. make it for the next year and someone like that and this is a point where we can do a certificate that says what they know you know the mm -hmm. employer can see look at it and says yes they know how to install a wireless router they know how mm -hmm. to set up a small home network things like that so uh, that was the again the discovery side where the we have the two te part tests right. that an employer can hire uh, a program someone in the summertime. Okay. And so you said the, the first class in the first semester, if I understand it correctly, because I know the Cisco curriculum changes about as much as the Microsoft changes. Yes. But, but so when you say kind of the SOHO or the small office, home office, am I to take from that in the first semester they're learning how to possibly uh, network using like the Linksys router that I might have at my house? Matter of fact, uh, that's the primary device that we use. Uh, Cisco bought out Linksys. But we, because we have a lot of simulation programs that are designed in the program, uh, which have just come out in the last few years, uh, you can design a complete network all the way up to enterprise level with some of the simulation programs the students get and the Linksys router is the starting device. Uh, what we'll do with that is we'll introduce them to the, the hardware, hands-on hardware, and then expose them to the simulation also and teach them how they can use that for designing their home network or business, small business network and so on like that. Uh, all the devices work exactly like in the real world. One of the nice things that they did design around it is if they set a configuration up in the simulation, mm -hmm. they can export that into the real device in the real world oh, okay. and not have to go over it again, ty typing it in or doing additional work with it. Mm -hmm. The uh, first semester is, again, small home office. Right. So uh, a lot of companies might have gone out and bought a Linksys switch, non-managed or something like that. So you're really talking about uh, what we used to call the peer-to-peer -peer type networks or a they might not have a server, they may have a server. Like a little work group? Right. Uh, one of the projects that they do do is what we call a 
uh, in the course, putting it all together. So mm-hmm. the last chapter. And everything they've done each chapter through, uh, looking at equipment, uh, how to purchase it, what it does, make decisions on it, uh, they roll that up into a final project where they design a small office uh, of a video, uh, it's kind of a video company, and it's set up that they cost it out. It's just as if they would have bought all the material and set it up themselves. Wow. And they build that each, the next semester. Uh, semester two is small office and uh, ISP. So you're talking about working with the cable company, like I said, or the mm-hmm. uh, a larger type company, not a small home office, the larger equipment. This is where you get into the true routers and switches and know, have to know the commands. So that starts to introduce more of the iOS? Right. And that's the main thing. Uh, we get a lot of students that take this semester one under the program, like the electricians, because those are the guys that probably end up pulling the wires and making the connections and things like that uh, under our Votech-type program. So we get a, a lot exposed, and then we have students that continue on because they got exposed to it, and they only need the three additional classes. Uh, so we try to break it so the first year they get the exposure, they can perform a lot of the functions, even if they're just coming back into the, coming into the field for the first time. And it puts their feet on the ground where they can say, yes, this is for me, or this might not, might not be what I want, uh, but it feeds me into other programs we have here, and we've tried to do that. Okay. So are there any, um, I know we got the 120 you mentioned, we have the 101, and we have the 131. 131, the first semester, that is the Cisco semester one for us. Right. We break ours out as IT 131, 231 is the second semester, or excuse it's me, one, 141. Yeah, 141. Yeah, 141 yeah. is the second semester. Mm-hmm. And then because you go to the next level in your second year, we go mm-hmm. 231 and then 241. Okay. Uh, now... And that's where I was telling you, you had the small home office type for the one, the 131. Then you went to uh, small business and ISP. Uh, the next level up for the third semester would be the setup for uh, ISP and enterprise. And our last one would be designing the enterprise. Okay. Where the WAN, because what we're trying to do is build it out from the individual's computer throughout every networking type of uh, business he would go, his data flows through. So he understands it from the time he types something in his computer to go mm-hmm. to ESPN.com to watch the Super Bowl. Right. The data coming back, how each one of those flow. So you can kind of go from a micro level out to a macro level. Yes. Okay. So he understands those. Now, mm-hmm. uh, again, the CCNA is only a entry-level examination, mm-hmm. and it is designed for it's the Cisco Certified Network Associate for that at that level. And then they branch out into their specialties, whether it's security, wireless, uh, voice over IP, which is becoming a large part of the networking field. And they're, they're coming out with some other ones uh, that we did, never had in the years past. Mm-hmm. But right now we, we focus up through the CCNA, get them into the workspace in two years, and get them uh, employable. Okay. Now, I'm sure a lot of the other classes you have in your curriculum, we had we had originally spoken about in the network administration. So if, if, you're, if you're a person who's curious about some of the classes that are listed there, let me borrow that just a second. We had talked about um, 
We had talked about the Advanced Operating Systems class and the network in the first podcast, basically, the 221. Um, we had talked about, um, I'm looking at other ones here. Um, we hadn't talked about 270. We're going to talk about 270 okay. here in just a second. But uh, we talked briefly about the uh, fundamentals of network security as well in the uh, in the the Microsoft network administration side. But one of the highlights that you just mentioned, Jack, that your curriculum has here that the Microsoft didn't have uh, is the 270 class. So um, we do have Josh Joseph with us here, and, and he's the teacher of that. And, and Jack, you're more than welcome to chime in on, on things here as well. But uh, why don't you two tell us about the, uh, the A-plus class or the uh, Computer Essentials and Applications class, as it's called? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it, uh, 270, IT 270 is essentially um, a prep class for the CompTIA A-plus certifi certification exam. Um, it's a mix of essentials and applications. Um, two tests uh, are required to receive your A-plus certification test. It's kind of a baseline um, as far as IT certifications go. Um, it's recognized worldwide. It's um, uh, if they're going to put on an application and they want a certification, it's typically the first one they're going to yeah, mention, right? It's, yeah, it's going to be the first one. It it can it can more or less tell the employer, hey, um, I know how to do all the basics of uh, computer repair, um, hardware-wise and software-wise. Um, in the class that I use, mm -hmm. um, without blowing do, up your computer, without blowing up your computer, yeah, that's the <laughs> idea. Um, in the class that I do, I, I mix both hands-on and lecture um, because if it's you could go through and just do straight lecture, um, the students could take and study all these multiple choice questions all you know all day long, take the test, have this piece of paper saying, okay, yeah, I've got my A plus, but then they're asked to do a job, asked to do some sort of hardware or software thing on the job, they don't have that experience. So with the with the 270 class, the way I do it. Um, I show them the hands-on. We take apart the computers. We completely strip them down. We build them back up, make sure they're running. We do a bunch of different testing. We do um, software. Uh, we do a basic operating system install. Mm -hmm. um, a little bit of security and a little bit of networking is also involved. Okay. So Now, I do know that, um, Jack, you mentioned we have a, a Cisco Academy here. And Cisco has partnered with CompTIA. Is that correct? Yes. The, um They've started a program for training uh, both uh, kind of the two-part uh, program. It's the IT Essentials now. Mm -hmm. uh, it was called IT Essentials 1 and 2 in the past, but it's IT Essentials 1 now. And uh, we're going to start looking at that as possible because CompTIA has decided that Cisco has one of the better uh, preparatory programs, uh, providing material, uh, labs, uh, standardized testing similar to what the, they'll get on the real test. And like you said, yeah, a person could study some of the books and read the multiple choice and they still wouldn't know how to, to fix a computer or right. do some uh, basic techniques. And that's one of the things with uh, what Josh does also is he's basically saying, I'm saying that this individual when he leaves my school, I've watched him do this. I've seen that he has performed all these tasks before he allows them to pass. And that's that's kind of our goal. We, we're telling employers that we're verifying with our signatures that they have done all these items. 
Now, <clears throat> excuse me, you mentioned that um, someone could go out and buy a book. Uh, they could try to read it. They could try to buy their own routers and stuff. What benefits does us being a Cisco Academy bring to a student on both the Cisco and the CompTIA side? Uh, well, for in both sides now, uh, with the newer CompTIA tests, there are some type of uh, simulation-type problems that they're starting to add in. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, not just being multiple choice, they would have to be able to turn on uh, a network card correctly or right. based on the operating system and type system and so on. What it is. Um, again, the A-plus feeds into, uh, they really need that base knowledge when they come into the CCNA program right. and that we look at it from that standpoint. Uh, on our side, we look at the simulations to make them, like I said, they can do everything in the simulation that they would physically do on the computer or the router, the switch, and those type networking devices in the real world. On their certification exam, it's not all multiple choice, true and false, and so on. It is a hands-on where they must type in the correct commands and procedures Mm -hmm. in the correct order, uh, similar to what's happening with the Microsoft exams, too. But do I understand it correctly, too, that because if they attended here and we use a Cisco Academy, that there may actually be perks with regards to getting pricing on tests? Uh, Yes. Uh, One of the things that we've tried to do under the Cisco Academy, uh, they always try to make you do better. Every school does that, whether it's a Cisco Academy or a regular uh, school. And as a perk, what they'll do is, if you're planning on taking the certification in two parts, or you're going to wait for the final one. If you score 80% or better on your final exam, uh, they give you a discount voucher for your exam costs. Now, the costs for exams are expensive, and you don't want to take those until you're ready for them. But when you are ready for them, you know, the discounts that they give you, between 20 and 30% on them because you scored well on the test, are very beneficial. Um, if you, approximate cost is, $150 on each part if you take it in two parts, semester mm-hmm. two and semester four, or overall at the end for the CCNA is approximately $295. Right. Okay. So, of course, the prices may be subject to change, everybody. If you're listening to this in 2017, it may be 500 bucks by now. But and there's but there's always programs. Uh, right. There's programs out there that every so often they'll come in and give you a discount voucher for all students. Uh, the, up until last year, until they're starting to transition to the new A-plus test, uh, they were given a large 50% discount for a, people taking the A-plus test. Wow. Uh, one thing that we've tried this year, and it should be up by the time we transfer to the new uh, school, mm-hmm. is the becoming a CompTIA Academy also. Mm-hmm. And with that, uh, we'll get discounts on the A-plus certifications, Network Plus, plus certifications, uh, Server Plus, Security Plus, so any of the CompTIA type tests, uh, mm-hmm. we get a discount voucher with. And uh, but the CompTIA tests are tiered, so the costs are based on what tier they consider that certification. In other words, entry level, level two, level three tier, right? And so on. Like Security Plus is the top tier, so it's the most expensive test. It's like around two hundred sixty dollars, I think, now these days. Yes, and, something around there. And, and like the the middle tier, like was like two hundred twenty dollars, roughly. Roughly. Yeah. And they'll give you a discount of as being a, a CompTIA Academy, one hundred ninety seven, okay. uh, one hundred and forty dollars for the 
A plus test or something like that. And every little bit helps. Every, yeah, and that's that's the thing because a student is a student, whether their parents are paying for it or you're going back to school and paying for it. Anything that's going to cut down on it. And like we said, things change every day. We try to keep our students up on on costing, and anything we can do to keep the costs down for them, we do. One of the programs that uh, we have with the Cisco side, uh, we also do a wireless class. Uh, which was added in. I was telling you that they had done the CCNA wireless, CCNA voice over IP, and CCNA security. Um, one of the things, a lot of people are doing wireless at home. And so we kind of focus on a secondary class with the CWTS certification, the Certified Wireless Technical Specialist certification, kind of entry level. But it gives them uh, exposure to it. And one of the things we did with it is under their textbook, uh, with the purchase price of their textbook, they get the certification exam with it. The voucher. The voucher that pays for their test. So we got with the, the company and everything like that. So as part of the book price, uh, it basically cut off over 50% of the cost of the book. Wow. Uh, or the test, basically. So they're, And then we try to get them ready for it by the time they graduate and everything like that. Uh, they usually take it in the fourth semester. Some students are able to take it in the second semester, uh, and we, we talk to them each time. But that's a good certification if they're going out there with the, getting the part one of the CCNA and that one. An employer knows that that individual can be an uh, entry-level network technician. So that is one that you also have. You have that in your Cisco curriculum? We have that in the Cisco okay. program right now. It's uh, IT225. Uh, okay. Do you know roughly, I know you've packaged in the book, but for anybody who's who's just curious about the exam, do you know roughly what it costs to take that exam? 175 175 About 175 Okay. okay. And uh, the test, the book, and everything, it's about the same price as when we buy it as a, uh, as a package. Okay. And that also gives them uh, a s online certification practice test. Great. So that's one of the nice things that they get to be exposed to the type of questions before they go out in the real world. So the same company kind of handles the test too. So, uh, and there are entry you know, the next level is the CWNA, uh, Certified Wireless Network Associate, similar. Mm -hmm. So you've got levels in that also. So. <clears throat> Just to clarify, you mentioned earlier that Cisco does have a wireless certification. The reason that we're not doing that here is because at a two-year institution, uh, you can get to your CCNA. That would require a person to be able to go and get uh, their, their higher level, the CCNP, which is typically something that would take them in field a good two more years. Uh, it's, it's the next level up. It's not all the way up to the CCNP level. Oh, okay. Uh, what they've done is... Because the devices that Cisco looks at from the standpoint of the, C, uh, the CCNA wireless right. is their own internal APs, oh, Cisco okay. access points, Cisco bridges, and so on like that, uh, we felt that the students uh, would get more job opportunities by mm -hmm. having a general type cert wireless certification because... Everything's not Cisco. Right. It's the same frequencies. It's the same standards and protocols and everything like that. Uh, so we felt that we could give them more exposure to the uh, wireless field by doing it that way than trying to add a wireless, Cisco wireless because it is command-driven, and they're getting that in the CCNA so they can build onto that for their next level up. If their employer's using those type devices, 
with the wireless that they've already had, it should take them just a few months, and they should be able to take their CCNA wireless test. Now, okay. the nice thing about that is, with it being in uh, the next level up test, when they certify and recertify for the wireless now, that automatically recertifies their CCNA for the next three years. So oh, okay. you've, as long as you basically maintain your wireless certification, that maintains your CCNA certification also. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much, Jack. So that wraps up our show. Uh, quick reminders, we want to let you know that we have a Twitter account that you're more than welcome to check for any links that we've talked about during this show or during the interview with Jack. That's Talk on Tech MCTC. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to go ahead and log on to Twitter there and send us a tweet, and we'll be happy to talk about it during class. But for now, until next week, I'm Patrick Smith. And I'm Josh Joseph. Have a good week. See you.